welcome back to Brailcast, the official podcast of the Brailist Foundation. I'm Dave Williams. Coming up... There's two literacy courses. Um, the first, which is focusing on the alphabet, simple punctuation, word and group signs, and then course two, which is a little bit more advanced. Currently, there are also two maths courses. There's an introductory or primary school maths course and an advanced maths for those junior high school concepts. And we're still working on the extension maths course, and that'll be available later this year, and that will focus on the more senior concepts in high school. How can you learn Unified English Braille online? The Royal Institute for Deaf and Blind Children, RIDBC, is Australia's largest non-governmental provider of services supporting thousands of adults, children and families with hearing loss or visual impairments. Established by an Act of Parliament in Australia in 1860, it now operates via a number of centres, promoting the rights of all persons with visual impairments to inclusion in education, employment and society. The Rennick Centre, in partnership with the Macquarie University, is Australia's leading centre for the provision of high-quality teaching and learning opportunities for professionals in the area of special education for students with hearing and vision impairment, research in these areas and related community service. In September 2014, the Rennick Centre launched UEB Online, an interactive website offering free training in Unified English Braille. A screen reader accessible version followed in September 2016 and since then the website has been continuously updated with new features and content. To find out more, we're joined by three members of the team behind UEB Online. Uh, Francis, let's come to you first. You're the team leader, is that right? Yes, that's probably my only claim to fame is that um, I'm the team leader and <laughs> came up with the original idea, but most of the work was put in by others in the team. So I'm a, a lecturer at um, the Rennick Centre, and as you mentioned before, we're affiliated with um, the tertiary sector. I'm also the president of the International Council for Education of People with Visual Impairment, ICEVI, and co-president of the South Pacific Educators in Vision Impairment, which is called SPEVI. So very active in the field of vision impairment and education. I'm a, basically an educator. Okay, Trudy, let's come to you. Hi, David. Lovely to be with you tonight. My name's Trudy Smith. I am the manager of continuing professional education at the RIDBC Rennick Centre. So my role is to run conferences, workshops, online learning experiences in hearing and vision, education and health. And UEB is part of our purview. Okay. And Josie? Hi, uh, Dave and, and Matthew. Um, yes, I was editor of the original UEB Primer that was published in 2006 and then co-editor of the UEB Australian Training Manual and now author of the UEB Maths Training Materials uh, for the UEB Online. Um, I've also, like Francis, got a number of hats, but just for this purpose, I've worked in vision impairment for more than 40 years and prior to my retirement last year was the manager of the New South Wales Department of Education uh, Braille Large Print and E-Text Production. I've represented Australia at all six of the International Council on English Braille General Assemblies 
and they're held every four years. And I've had a strong input, fortunately, into the early discussions of UEB from the developmental years. I've conducted extensive workshops throughout Australia on numerous Braille-related topics and presented papers in Thailand, Germany, New Zealand, South Africa, the USA and Austria. Could one of you just talk us through the development of UEB online? Where did the idea come from and how did you sort of bring it to fruition? The Rennick Centre was established in 1994 and it's, it's our area's research and professional learning. So since 1994, we've been um, offering Braille training, you know, in face-to-face and then gradually we introduced distance education to our master's degree students as well as professionals in the field. So that program, and Josie has had a lot to do with it over many years as our teacher, was operating. Then what happened, you know, we've had the growth of accessible digital technology of late and there was also growth of these things called MOOCs. I don't know whether you know the term, massive open online courses offered by universities. And the model they used was to offer offer their courses free with a charge for a certificate. So there's a few factors in play which I'd like to tell you about. One of the other considerations was that Australia was an early adopter of UEB. We adopted in 2005. And so we basically led the charge in producing a lot of the training materials. So we were very conscious that there was a need for training opportunities beyond Australia's borders. And the final piece in this puzzle is looking at my ICEVI um, activities and I, we work closely with World Blind Union and one of the things which you will be aware of in many developing countries, basically there is there are no teachers with qualifications in Braille and children are turned away at the, at the door of schools because there's no one who feels that they can teach these children. Often in developing countries there's no Braille training programs at all and the cost of Braille equipment is enormous. So we sort of felt that this combination of this new era of accessible digital technology combined with our background as the only provider really of the degree program in Australia, plus this international need, all together was a very good reason to to start the the, um, development. And who was the target audience for UEB Online initially? Well, initially, our target audience was basically um, professionals who were teachers of Braille. Um, We had some discussions with our own Australian Braille Authority and they were quite firm that it was you would never teach um, someone who is blind how to read Braille online. So with that idea, we went forward with um, producing a training program which was for professionals and the families and anyone who supports children and young people learning Braille. But what we've discovered once it went international and the Americans came on board saying, you know, we have a lot of teachers who are blind, who are teachers of Braille, so we must have an accessible version. So then we developed the accessible one. So our target is for people who teach Braille rather than learners of Braille per se, because the Australian Braille and I do think they're right, feel it would be a very tough way to be learning Braille from the beginning. And are you able to give us any sense of the breakdown now that you do have an accessible version? Clearly, individual Braille users, you know, I'm aware of, have gone on and done UEB online. They're not necessarily Braille teachers, but 
They perhaps wanted to have some sort of certification, uh, you know, in Braille. Other just curious people will go on and try it. Is there a kind of a shape to the audiences that you're reaching? Yes, well, we've had a good uptake from those teachers of Braille who have vision impairment. The accessible version, which we started with, um, the uptake is still fairly, you know, we're talking around 2,000 people who use the accessible version, which is either screen reader with a refreshable Braille display. But unfortunately, when we set it all up, we didn't, you know, we have a registration process, but we should have asked more questions about, you know, what is your background and where are you based? But we didn't think about that at the time. So we don't really have a breakup of who are those people that are accessing it using the screen reader and Braille display. So UEB, Unified English Braille, clearly it's uh, an international standard. Would you say that uh, UEB online is uh, suitable for an international audience? Obviously, you guys in Australia, it was initially designed for an Australian audience, but you know the web is is everywhere, right? Absolutely. And this has been an area that's been an astonishment to us. And there's a never ending astonishment because what we've found, you know, since the initial launch back in 2014, we've had over 15,000 people subscribe. The majority of them are from the UEB countries, including the UK and America and Canada, New Zealand, etc. But we have 197 countries represented in our subscriber group so when i've traveled globally with my in my icb evi role i've been asking why are people studying ueb online when you don't even speak english as your national language but apparently a lot of countries are teaching english in the schools so naturally they want a, a braille code for english and places like ethiopia are actually looking at transitioning to ueb simply because UEB online is there and they don't have any teachers to teach Braille in the country, but they've got this online option. So it's quite interesting to see the international impact of UEB. So fundamentally, obviously, UEB online is a distance learning course. Can it be used in conjunction with face-to-face Braille teaching? Look, in in our view, this would be the absolute ideal. You know, there's nothing better than face-to-face teaching um, and learning. So in some parts of the world, people are teaming up. They're actually creating their own Facebook groups of learners and working their way through it together. It's a training module. You know, they're training programs. We're not examining people's ability. So we fully support people coming together and working together on it. I think it's a wonderful idea to to combine it with face-to-face teaching. So just getting in a little bit of detail of how it works, you're in an exercise and you have to write Braille with your computer keyboard. Do you need any kind of special keyboard or will just any old QWERTY keyboard do the job? Any old QWERTY keyboard will do the job. It does need to be connected to a computer and it uses the SDF and JKL keys for six uh, dot input. The program, the computer has to have a physical keyboard. So it won't work with a virtual keyboard like those on an iPad or a touchscreen tablet. And can you just sort of talk us through a little bit about how the screen reader support works? So how does it deal with, uh, you know, describing Braille cells and that sort of thing? 
Sure. So for standard web pages and lesson descriptions, the screen reader works conventionally, reading text as it sees it with standard screen reader controls for moving between paragraphs. So Braille cells, whilst they're displayed as six dots to a sighted user, are written as a sequence of dots for the screen reader to read, e.g. dots one and two and four and five. So the exercises within each lesson have been specifically crafted with screen reader support to allow someone the best chance of turning the print passage into a Braille passage. So there are shortcut keys available, the numeric keys, which are used to read the whole paragraph, read the whole sentence, read the current word, read the next word, read the content entered so far, and spell the current word. So, so therefore, a, a user can navigate their way through a passage. And a similar concept applies for the UEB online maths, where a sentence corresponds to the whole equation and words applied to parts of it. So for example, two plus three equals five, is read word by word as two plus three, and then equals, and then five. So all this means that a user from within the text box in which they're brailing content can find information about what they're meant to type without needing lots of extensive memory or needing to leave a text box as a conventional screen reader would. So if a user does have a refreshable braille display, how does the support for the braille display work? So the braille display is is purely as a tool to feel the dots. So while reading normal screen content of the lessons, it's operated by the screen reader in a conventional manner. Although if you're doing the exercises, it's reconfigured that only the dots that are being typed are displayed as they're typed by the user. So it's a requirement that the screen reader be used for knowing what to input and the display play for feeling what has been input. Right. So you can't just copy what you feel, basically. That's what I'm, I'm sort of getting at. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So the exercises, you have a fixed line length for those. So they don't wrap. Is that that's intentional? And is can you just sort of clarify, is there a reason for that? Sure. It was decided early on that knowing when to move to a new line, particularly for the literacy course, was a really essential part of the learning. So therefore, a user is made to keep track of where they're up to on a line, assess whether the next word would fit, and move to the next line. So it's not extensive, it's just a basic premise of making them format their answers. So when using the non-visual mode, two different sounds are displayed while typing. A ding is played at 34 cells and a bong is played at 40 cells. So that a user has a warning, like a reaching the end indication. But in addition to that, there are shortcut keys to say what the current position is on that current line. So the website, um, it's free, but you do have to register. Correct. Yeah. It only requires registration if you plan to view the lessons and then complete the exercises. There's a whole lot of other resource material that's available without registration. But when you're undertaking the courses, we need to be able to keep track of the progress so that you can come back at any time. And we're finding that people can go away for a month, two months, a year, and then continue where they left off. And if without that registration, we couldn't keep track of that for each individual user, which would make completing the course really impractical and hard to manage. So it would need to be done from the same browser that they initially started the course in. So this is just a way to help us support the users. So can you just talk us through the range of courses that are on offer? Sure. So currently we've got four courses that are available. There's two literacy courses. Um, the first, which is focusing on the alphabet, simple punctuation, word and group signs, and then course two, which is a little bit more advanced. 
Currently, there are also two maths courses. There's an introductory or primary school maths course and an advanced maths for those junior high school concepts. And we're still working on the extension maths course, and that'll be available later this year, and that will focus on the more senior concepts in high school. And the literacy course is in two segments as well. So how did you determine the split point there? So the literacy course, um, there are two modules um, and it's basically split down the middle of the 30 exercises because it seemed a good spot. Historically, the literacy course was offered to a group of trainees in Papua New Guinea and um, I had split the course into two simply because it was quite overwhelming to have this whole 30 to learn in one go all those exercises. Ideally, we should combine them again because it sort of suggests that you can do part one and that will be enough when really you've got to go all the way to the end of the second module to have completed all the contractions. So it's just a historical reason, really, a link to the Pacific Island countries. I've got a question about pace and we've had comments uh, that some people feel the the lessons are quite fast paced. uh, Although you have said, you know, you can log out, you can take as long as you you like over it. I suppose by that people mean, you know, they want to really reinforce what they've learned before moving on to the next bit. Do you have any thoughts around that? I personally didn't think it was fast paced for those very reasons that you've just touched on, that you can stop and start and stop and start and come back Basically, you can whatever you want to do in a sitting and save your work, and you can come back when time and the commitments allow. There's no time for completion, although many students like to maintain a regular access to ensure that what they've learnt does not get forgotten. And I've always encouraged all of the students I had in a face-to-face setting that Braille will come with practice. The more you can do, the more you'll consolidate what you've learnt. So I don't think the actual course is fast because it's dependent on the time of someone using it. But I would discourage someone trying to burn through, you know, at a very fast pace because I'm not sure that you'll retain all the important elements that you need to. Because it is a case of remembering what you've just done and then apply it in the next exercise with something new. And that's the building process of the course. So Unified English Braille is a code. Uh, UEB itself doesn't cover formatting. There are some local differences still in how we format our Braille. Are there any aspects of formatting covered in the course? It's fairly basic in the sense of because you've got your text box to respond, you don't have to put pagination, uh, centering, any of those other features of formatting. Probably the only thing in the literary content would be new paragraphs. So in the print to Braille, it's obviously a new paragraph. You'd be asked to put that in cell three. And in the Braille to print, when you saw the Braille indented in cell three, you'd be expected to indent that paragraph. Very much that all that's being asked in the formatting generally, the first 22 lessons are all right adjusted, as you probably experienced. (laughs) And then from 23 onwards, it's a wraparound format. So it just flows through. And that leads the students to what we recognise as more general braining. It's not as artificial as that line-for-line representation that you get in print. In uh, some of the UEB maths code, a user can use his or her 
discretion to determine where to use grade one indicators. How do the maths modules deal with that? So every country in the world has their own formatting guidelines for the use of grade one mode in particular. It was not possible to accommodate all these variations from all over the world. So the advice and guidance that's given immediately before each exercise is to say that for the purpose of these exercises in this course, use the following criteria for implementing grade one mode. And that would be use the grade one symbol when there's only one symbol in the sequence requiring a grade one indicator. Use the grade one word when there are two or more symbols in the sequence. And when I say sequence, I mean before it hits the space requiring grade one mode, except in a context where any literary elements will be affected and as a consequence will also be uncontracted. And the third one is use grade one passage when a comparison indicator, such as an equal sign or a greater or less than sign, is used in the sequence and grade one indicators are required on both sides of the equation, remembering that, of course, the grade one mode impacts on those literary elements. So effectively, it was impossible to accommodate every country's various formatting guidelines that they would want to have at a local level. So the best we could come up with was to put that criteria there in front of every exercise. However, we have embedded in the responses the various options that are available. It's only if you go outside of those generalist ones that you will probably strike a bit of difficulty. Right now, we've got two literacy uh, levels and two uh, maths levels, and I, I understand there are plans to add a third maths course later in the year. Beyond that, are, are you looking at music or science or, or, or any other subjects? Well, just uh, as much as we'd like to you know, go further into those STEM subjects, the Code Maintenance Committee of the ICEB are currently reviewing the UEB technical guidelines document, which is obviously what's the reference that is used for any of those technical areas. And so it'd be a little bit premature at the moment to undertake a major rewrite of these curriculum areas with the knowledge that changes would be highly likely, you know, in the near future. We're also aware there'll also be small adjustments or updates necessary to our current UEB maths modules to encompass any changes if and when necessary. But as Braille is a living code, it will always need to be adjusted as changes are made. And from the music position, there is technically an international music code, but there is still variations of that. And I know the UK had uh, guidelines to use for the formatting, and I think Banner had another set, uh, even though it is an international code. So there is... Um, there would be considerations to take on board if you went down that music path too. I'm not saying it's an impossibility, it's not, but uh, they're the areas that can um, be affected. And that really feels like the massive challenge that you've got trying to reconcile some of those regional differences. One of the areas might be teaching foreign languages in English-speaking countries that in the UK, for example, we have guidance uh, for schools to use the accents from those languages. So if you were teaching French in an English school, you would use the French accent signs, not the UEB e-acute symbol. So do you have any thoughts on that? 
Yes, well, you know, similar to the variety of Braille formatting guidelines being used, the same applies to foreign language production, which you've already touched on. And there could be a variation to what is undertaken in various countries. Just for the purposes of the literary uh, module, lesson 30 is the last lesson in the module and advises everyone to make reference to section 13 of the Rules and Guidelines of Unified English Braille, second edition, 2013. All that is actually addressed in that um, literacy module is that uh, foreign accents may be used in words that will appear in a literary context, such as in novels uh, like cafe, that often has the acute on the E, the naive, which has the umlaut on the I, resume, which will have the acutes. So for a general reader, if they're just reading a novel or some text and they're not studying the language, here in Australia, they would use the UEB accent codes because there's only a couple of them to consider. However, if you're looking at studying that um, subject, we here in Australia, and it would appear as though yourself in the UK, recommend that you use the foreign language code of the country that they're studying. So if it's French, you'd use the French code. And we've produced, when I was working in the Department of Education, we have produced Mandarin, we've produced Japanese, we've produced Vietnamese, Greek, Latin, French, German, and so on. So we've done the full range, but we've done them because the student is studying the language, we have done it in the code of the country. So to complete each exercise, you need to get 100% accuracy. So what happens if a user makes a mistake? So in the visual mode for sighted users, an error message displayed on the screen indicating that the word is wrong or the space or return is probably expected. So at present, a user can ignore the error and continue on but the passage won't be marked as correct until all errors are complete. Whereas in the non-visual mode for vision impaired users, an error message is read by the screen reader, indicating that they need to go back and correct things. So unlike the visual mode, you can't proceed until the error is fixed. And this was deemed the most practical solution because proceeding with errors would make it really difficult to later identify and correct them for that non-visual user. And if you don't notice that you've made a mistake, are you able to correct that without having to redo the entire exercise? Yeah, so for visual mode, absolutely. All contents displayed and the cursor can be moved to the point of the error and then be corrected by entering the appropriate symbols or the space or the return. This isn't applicable for the non-visual mode because you can't proceed past an error. So do you find, because you've obviously got this requirement to get 100%, you know, do people kind of go off and try and um, Google the, the answer or, or <laughs> something like that? It's a philosophical thing, really. From the pro programmer's point of view, it's actually much harder task than simply making sure it's 100% accurate. Computers like black and white, not grey. And that's a grey area because it could just have one cell wrong. It could be a word, it could be an entire phrase. So identifying the error and providing feedback would be difficult because there's so many combinations that I actually don't think Google would help. Yeah, and on feedback, obviously, you mentioned earlier that the benefit of face-to-face -face Braille teaching, and, and that is a big part of that, isn't it? The, getting that, that feedback initially rather than computer says no, you know. So how do you get that balance right? Well, I, every day I would um, uh, tackle any queries, if any, that have come through. I do ask that users supply a screenshot because when they describe whatever it is they've done and they say, I, you know, it's a wrong word, 
the mistake could be in a couple of places. So ideally, if I can see uh, what they've produced in Braille, I can I know straight away immediately what the actual error is. And when I respond, I explain why. And that's particularly so in the mathematics, that when I get a response to give back to a student, for me, it's important not to tell them exactly what it should be, will I sort of do do that, but I do explain why it's the case that they needed this extra sign or they didn't terminate the root sign, they forgot to put it in, or they used the wrong fraction indicators, it wasn't a simple fraction, it was a general fraction. So I do give a fairly extensive response to every query that comes in. I do this every day, so allowing for time zones, you probably from the UK often when the you know the query comes into me, I'm usually asleep. So it's when I get up every morning I deal with the, any queries that have come through. So it's probably a 24-hour turnaround. Sure. And while I'm waiting for you to respond to my screenshot, can I save my place? Absolutely. So you could save at any point while you're completing the exercise. And we actually actively encourage that. So if something goes wrong with your computer, the internet drops out, you haven't actually lost everything. Um, so, and at the end of completing an exercise, the user's content, it's actually automatically saved anyway. So absolutely, you can come and go, you can get a cup of tea and come back to it. You haven't lost everything you've just worked on. It's important to be able to do that. So your model then is that the course itself is free to do, but there is a charge if you want the certificate, right? Absolutely. And that's the MOOC model that Francis was, was referring to earlier. So each certificate is an Australian $50. So for your British audience, excellent exchange rate right now. So it certainly doesn't cost um, quite that much. But we use that purchase price to help us fund Josie's time to provide troubleshooting. We have Craig Cashmore who provides our technical support. And it's also helping to contribute to the ongoing development of courses. So Having the certificates paid for by those people who want that certificate and can afford that certificate means that we've been able to add the maths courses and is currently contributing to this third maths course as well. So there's no obligation to buy those certificates, but some people like to have that and that just enables us to continue to expand and extend the course. So if somebody qualifies for a, a certificate and they get their certificate, so I got the uh, the level two one, I think, for the, the literacy, that doesn't qualify me to be a braille transcriber or a braille teacher does it it's probably a local decision as to the course and you know it was designed to learn ueb where here in new south wales the course is a mandatory prerequisite which francis has touched on when undertaking the postgraduate course accreditation would be dependent on the local education authority or a local braille authority However, there may be many local education authorities and organisations that will expect and require their staff to show that they have completed a course in Braille. I've come across this many times from the users that have been doing the courses. At the end, they say how excited they are. Thank you so much for your help. I really had to do this for my employer. So it is a variable, but it is a very transparent way. If you can uh, show that certificate, it's proof that you've successfully completed a course in Braille. And certainly if a position were to be advertised at any organisation, it would give you a better standing than someone who didn't have any knowledge at all of Braille. And how widely has it been recognised in that way? 
I'm only aware of ones that have come back to me when they've completed it and also ones where they have been saying, I need to finish this as part of my employment. So I'm fairly certain that the ones I'm thinking of are from the states. They've obviously got a local requirement that their staff do undertake the course, but I would never really know because we don't get that sort of... Um, it's not in the registration any way of um, trapping it at all. How does the UEB online certification compare with other certificates like the Trans-Tasman certification? Well, I'm also the chair of the examinations board for the Trans-Tasman Proficiency Certificate since its inception uh, for Australia. It's a, an agreement between New Zealand and Australia, which is, you know, hence it got the name Trans-Tasman, and prior to that, I was chair of the examinations board for the Australian Braille Authority Proficiency Certificate in Braille. It's an examination that's conducted, this is the Trans-Tasman, once a year, uh, usually around October. And the students or candidates submit a hard copy Braille for marking. And it would be considered quite rigorous due to the pass level, which is 70%. And the fact it is not self-marking, obviously. But you can make changes along the way. So for the Trans-Tasman, applicants for this test can only use a Perkins Brailler or Perky Duck free download software. And that gives no proofreading line at the bottom of the screen and no auto formatting. So effectively, while it is on a computer, you've got the ability to make corrections. It's similar to a Perkins in that way. But of course, you know, error correction is a, is a benefit if you use Perky Duck. We're currently investigating the development of a, a similar online test that could be undertaken and submitted with computer programming marking, which is something we'd really like to do. However, this consideration is still part of the future vision and Francis might want to add to that. Hopefully it will become a reality because I think um, that would uh, make things a lot more fluid to be able to do it in that format. Yes, I'd like to just um, also mention um, that the Trans-Tasman is a certificate of proficiency. Our course and our certificate is really for a beginner person who's becoming to be a teacher of Braille. We don't expect proficiency. And I think Josie would agree that, you know, the people who um, we want to have, and I've also been on the, the examination board with Trans-Tasman, we don't want beginners <laughs> because they make so many errors. We want people who've been in the profession for a long time so we're actually looking at joining forces with the Braille Authorities of Australia and New Zealand and perhaps putting the Trans-Tasman online, offering that as an online. It will take the, a big load off the people who set it each year and market, which is all done on a voluntary basis. This has been fantastic, ladies, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Clearly, UEB Online is a fantastic resource. Are you able to signpost to any other resources for people just uh, starting out with UEB or even Braille in general? When we first created um, or thought, even thought about developing this online course, you know, RDBC is a charity and we look to RDBC and our sponsors and charitable foundations to assist and we had always anticipated that other agencies would come on board, especially with UEB rolling out. And we know about the American Printing House for the Blind has a, a course in um, mathematics, UEB mathematics, and it's particularly focused on transcribers. And we've kind of expected other 
agencies to build on it because ours is very much a you know it stayed in a static form and and um, we have limited funds so may i say to you um that if anyone in the uk does want to address that issue about the pacing and to develop some you know online resources we will very happily link to those at the moment we've linked on the ueb online website there's a resources page and it's got training manuals and guidelines and links to the iseb and our own australian um, Braille Authority and the Roundtable in our region. So, yes, we are very happy to link with anyone for, to support Braille because, as I mentioned, in the, in the developing world, we need more Braille out there. And I think 197 countries doing this reflects the need for accessible digital Braille courses. So um, over to you <laughs> to develop something. Definitely. And one of the great promises and potentials, which I think is really yet to be fully realised of UEB, was that ability to share content and resources across you know, national borders. So hopefully we can see a lot more of that going forward. Yes. And I was just going to mention the Marrakesh Treaty and, you know, as we go forward with, with more, more and more countries adopting, even the USA and, of course, UK, that should enable us to have more and more children learning Braille and adults accessing Braille. Osi, over to you. Yes, I just, with something that was just mentioned then about that uh, sharing of resources, when Australia voted to adopt UEB in 2005, to implement in 2006, we had no training manual. And I'm most grateful to the RNIB for their support in providing us with the files that they produced, the British Braille Primer. It was a huge amount of work for me at the time, even with the files, but it would have been much, much more without. And I'm most grateful to the RNIB and Bork and UCAF with the discussions that we've had in in supporting each other because it has been very very good and I was most grateful because I didn't have very long to get a document into the hands of our teachers. Clearly it's not just uh, goodwill people sending you their thanks and and hopefully getting you on uh, podcasts and so on you've won an award as well. Um, Yes we were we were extremely excited to receive a zero project award for recognition recognition of UEB online as an innovative project and I don't know if you're aware of the zero project which is um, offered each year and so we the award ceremony was at the UN uh, headquarters in Vienna and Josie represented us and accepted the, the award on our behalf. There are about 800 people there in the United Nations building it was um, very um, prestigious and very exciting to have been globally recognised. Francis, Trudy and Josie, thank you so much for all your efforts with UEB Online. A fantastic resource uh, and people should certainly, if you haven't already, go and complete some of those courses and get your certificate. How do people get in touch with you ladies uh, if they've got any follow-up questions? Thanks so much for your time, David. Well, the course itself is uebonline.org. Or you can get in touch with us at uebonline at ridbc.org.au and we're happy to make that available. You can include that in your show notes perhaps, David. We most certainly will. Thanks again. 
And uh, that's it for Brailcast this time. Do stay in touch if you have any comments, questions or suggestions for future Brailcast episodes. Do drop us a line, news at brailcast.com or you can follow us on Twitter at Brailcast. Uh, from myself, Dave Williams, uh, Matthew Horsepool, producer and the rest of the team. Until next time, bye for now. Thank you.